So this morning, uh, we are uh, beginning uh, a new series. Uh, originally, uh, we had talked about it. Originally, I was going to do a series through Jeremiah, uh, which is a huge book, so we probably never would have gotten through it, but the plan was going to be to do 12 sermons. Uh, and then very quickly, uh, that changed. Uh, I was studying for a while, and it just wasn't clicking, and I couldn't quite understand uh, why? Why it wasn't going to work? And then this thought struck me a few weeks ago. Uh, I clicked, uh, I clicked the, the Penske website, and I booked our moving truck, and I realized, wow, we're leaving. I'm leaving. This, this, is, this is real. Like, within a few months, I'm leaving, and I really got to thinking about my legacy here in Panton, as Peter furrows his brows. Last year we sat in your living room and you said we weren't going to be sad until it comes. And now it's coming and it's rough. But I really started thinking about my legacy here in Panton. What would, as I leave, I've been looking back over things that, we've, that I've grown in, things we've preached on, things we've worked through together, and just wondering, what would I leave behind? What could I leave behind uh, with you? What am I going to leave behind? So I started having this thought. And then Albert preached a fantastic sermon. A few weeks ago, Kirsten and I went away to a marriage uh, retreat. It was fantastic. Uh, Albert preached a fantastic sermon. Uh, even though I wasn't here, I listened to it. And what struck me out of Albert's sermon was how practical it was. That Albert took a very big theological truth, but brought it right down to the everyday, moment-by-moment situations we live in. Right? Those of you who are here, it was a good job. Good job, Albert. And then at the marriage conference, as Kirsten and I sat in on some sessions, uh, nothing was earth-shattering, but everything was earth-shattering. What I mean by that is nothing was like, whoa, I never heard that before, but it was so practical that it was good, and then it struck me. I wanted to take a few weeks and offer some very practical application of biblical truth for us. I thought that would be good for us as a bit of leaving a legacy. And really, it, it kind of started around this thought when I was at the, marriage conversa- or at the marriage conference with Kirsten. I was struck with this idea that as a husband and as a father, I tend to find myself clunking my way through it, uh, kind of making it up as I go. Right? Anybody? Anybody feel like in life, whatever situation, maybe you're not a parent, maybe you are a parent, maybe you're married, maybe you're not married, maybe you're an employee, maybe you're an employer, how often do you find yourself clunking your way through things and trying to make it up as you go? Not quite certain how it should work. That thought really struck me at the marriage conference. And so with this last sermon series that I will be blessed to be able to do as your pastor, I want to leave you with not just another bit of theological truths, uh, not another bit of an exegetical necessarily sermon through a book of the Bible, uh, and just relegate some philosophical principles to you. Rather, I wanted to offer some truth that you can build your life upon. Does that sound good? Some real practical truth, a truth that confronts the darkness of the evil one and all the powers of hell, a truth that confronts that with the glorious light of Jesus. Amen? That sounds good, right? So in effect, I find this to be my legacy as my pastorate here comes to an end in Panton. Uh, Now, uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm currently uh, in the midst of grad school, I'm taking some classes online right now uh, to prepare for my seminary experience. So I'm currently swimming in uh, 
writing papers. I average, I type about 100 pages a week. Uh, and I'm swimming with this idea of thesis. I'm continuing to have to develop theses. Is it, is it thesi, Alex? What's the plurality of thesis? Theses. Make sure you say that right, because that could be awkward real quick. So I find myself swimming in theses. And so I thought it would be very good uh, if I gave a thesis for our series. As we begin to look at these truths to build a life upon, some very practical ideas, I thought it would be good to have a thesis for us, and here it is. My thesis for this series, my thesis for my legacy that I hope to leave here in Panton is this. That to be Christian is to be fully human. That to be Christian is to be fully human. To be a Christian is to experience humanity restored. To be a Christian is to be redeemed by grace through faith. And it's beginning a grand restoration process. To be Christian is to be fully human. It's to have potentiality realized. All that was built into the human machine given us by God is realized. That's what it is to be a Christian. All that we've been designed to be in the gospel at its core At the center of the gospel is this one thought that is the restoration of all things, right? We know that. The gospel is the restoration of all things. That sounds very big, very theological, but I thought, let's look at a couple scriptures for us. Uh, One thing on the screen, the title of this series will be called A Grand Design, and we're going to walk through the design of God in our life. We're going to talk about some fun things. We're going to address them this morning. Uh, But if you would, uh, go ahead and turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. And I believe Albert will put it up here on the screen if you don't want to turn there. But Revelation chapter 21. And the gospel at its core being the restoration of all things. We we read this. In Revelation chapter 21 and verses 5 and the first half of verse 6. Revelation 21, 5 and 6. We read, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. In verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I love that. He said, behold, I'm making all things new, and it's done. Things are made new. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 19. John chapter 19, in verses 28 through 30. So how do we we get there? How do we get to Revelation chapter 21, where Jesus says on the throne, I make all things new, and it's done. I've done it. I made the way for things to be made new. How does that happen in John chapter 19, verse 28 through 30? We read this. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, say it with me, he said, it is 
finished. The cross of Christ is the glorious offer to you and I that we will be made new. We will be restored. We get Revelation 21 because of John chapter 19. Because of the cross. Jesus died and said, it is finished. By faith in Christ, we can and will be made new. Amen? That's a good offer. And so for this series on this idea of a grand design, I wanted to go to Genesis chapter 1 through 3. It's going to be our controlling text as we walk through the next 10 weeks or so. Uh, And I wanted to start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. So go ahead and turn there. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. And this is after God created everything. After all was done, everything was completed. We read this. Genesis chapter 1 verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. I love that word there in the Genesis text. It means uh, much muchness. It's kind of redundant. It means muchness good. God saw everything that he had made and said, that is much good. That is great. That is wonderful. That is abundantly good. That's abundantly wonderful. And what happens? We, we know that Genesis 3 happens, right? We know the fall happens. We know sin enters the world. Sin breaks and busts everything. We see that. And the question kind of gets, has to be asked is what happened then to the abundant goodness? What happened to the exceeding goodness of Genesis chapter 1 verse 31? I mean, seriously, look at our world. Right? Look at your street. Look at your own souls. Look at your own homes. Look at your neighbors. Look at our culture. Look at our country. What happened to the abundant goodness? God said, I created it. It's good. What happened? Are the purposes and designs of God done? Interesting question. If he created it good, then why is my experience so bad? What happened to it? Our world is just, it's, it's, you could barely even call it good, let alone exceedingly good. I don't think we could call our world much good, right? John chapter 10. John chapter 10. What about this muchness of goodness of God's design? John chapter 10 and verse 9 and 10. I love this. Jesus is speaking, and this is in the chapter where Jesus begins to refer to himself as the good shepherd. John 10 is a beautiful passage of scripture. Here's what Jesus says about himself. John chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came, now catch this, 
He says, I came. He said, here's why I came. That's what he says here. When he says, I came, it's meaning very firm, forceful. Here's why. Here's a description why I came. I came that they may have life and have it what? I came that they may have life and life abundantly. I came that they just wouldn't have life. They would have much life, a good, much goodness in their life. I came to restore them, Jesus would say. That's the offer. I would restore the very goodness of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. I came to restore the very goodness of all things that through my death that I willingly die they may experience life and life to the full. Amen. He's restoring the very good of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31. So my thesis of this entire series is to be Christian is to be fully human. Now that's really great. You could say, Travis, that's great. But there you are again, leaving us very high theological, philosophical concept. What does that mean for me tomorrow? What does it mean for me when my toddler is stomping on the floor and not wanting to listen to me? Welcome to parenting. Oh my goodness. What does it mean when I fight with my spouse? What does it mean as I'm trying to understand my gender, my identity, who I am, what culture is having to say? What does this account have to say to that? What does God's design that was seemingly lost in Genesis 3 and subsequently restored in Revelation 21, what is it? What is God's design? What is he restoring through the cross of Christ? And so I want to take my last few weeks here to explore that idea of God's design and hopefully leave you with some very practical wisdom and advice, not from me, It's odd as a 31-year-old to say, hey, I'm going to give you some wisdom, but rather let's go to scriptures and what does God have to say about his design regarding the very practical things in our life? I want to show how Satan is the great counterfeit, how the power of sin and the evil one have so invaded our world and they offer nothing but assaults on God's design, but I want to look to Jesus to say that he can restore God's design. So as I said, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapters 1 through 3, Uh, In this series, we're going to travel to the Song of Solomon. We're going to travel to Proverbs, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Kings, and others as we seek to find God's design for varying aspects of our humanness. Sound good? I think it'll be a good series. And I want to cover uh, several topics as we go along. And the first point being this, number one, uh, that mankind is created. It's an interesting thought. Mankind is created. And this is not going to be a lecture on young earth versus old earth. We're not going to go to the Genesis text and use it as a science textbook because it's not. But rather, we're going to look beneath the text itself and ask questions of what does it mean for me to have a creator and me to be created? That's an interesting idea. What does it mean to be created? And we'll find that there's immense implications surrounding being created, implications such as dignity and worth, responsibility, our place in the cosmos. Some good stuff. Anybody used to watch WWF when you were younger? WWE? Anybody? All right, so uh, when I was a kid, I used to love watching WWE. 
And one of my favorite wrestlers was The Rock. I loved The Rock. And I don't want to, this phrase I'm going to use is a little brash, but I think it gets the point across. When The Rock came onto the scene, his big statement was, know your role and shut your mouth. That's what The Rock would say. Remember that, Ron? You don't remember that? Oh, know your role, the rock would say. And I think as we study this idea of being created, God will show us our role. God's going to say, know your role, know your place. And in this, we're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2, Psalm 139. We're going to flesh this out. What does it mean to be created? In this conversation, we're going to talk about gender. Not only what does it mean to be created, that's great, but practically, what is gender? What does it mean that God engendered us? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we read this regarding gender. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Interesting. What about gender? And we're not going to have a tirade against culture, but rather a look into what does it mean that God engendered us? What does it mean to be a man? Here's a good question. Ever ask yourself that question? What does it mean to be a man? Val never has. That's good, Val. This one's for you. What does it mean to be a woman? I want to spend a week on each gender seeking one point that The differences in gender are a good thing and something to be celebrated rather than be defended or get offended over. God created us as genders. Now, man, I I find it foolish that we've relegated masculinity to guns and trucks. No offense if you have guns and trucks, but that does not what it means to be a man. There's more to it than that. Men, what is our role and responsibility? There's an interesting question we're going to explore. We'll read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, that God, when he created Adam, he told him to do what? He told him to work and keep. We're going to explore that idea of something central to being a man, that we were designed to work and designed to keep. Ladies, Proverbs 31, just joking. (laughs) We're not going to go there. In fact, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15 again. And then we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, where we read this. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Implying this, that man was created to work and keep, but couldn't do it by himself and needed a helper to also work and keep. We're going to look at men and women both being designed to work and keep, and women as the helper And help the man do what? Work and keep. And here's what it implies. Weakness on the behalf of man. Ever think about that? And the the necessity of the woman. And explore this idea that contrary to the culture and the modern sexual revolution, men need women. And women need men. Not in a devalued sense of need, but in a balanced sense of needs. That the genders complement one another. And my prayer is after those sessions that we would rejoice in the gender that God has given us. It would rejoice in being a man, rejoice in being a woman as a good thing. The second point that we'll look at uh, in this series is mankind as communal. That we were created for community. We were created to be with each other. And under this, I want to address the subject of marriage. 
What does it mean to be married? What is it for? Good question, right? What does it mean to be married? What is this thing? We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5. Turn with me there, if you would, real quick. In Ephesians chapter 5. And just for today, Ephesians 5, verse 31 through 33. Ephesians 5, 31 through 33, we read this. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I want to swim around in this idea of marriage so that no longer you have to clunk your way through it. Those of you that are married, you don't have to figure it out as you go. And what's funny is I find the same question that I have with going on being married for six years is the same questions that people who have been married for 40 years have. They're like, I don't know how to do it. Kind of making it up as we go. Now the big one. We're going to talk about sex. We're going to address this idea of sexuality inside this idea of marriage and community. What is God's design and plan for sex? Ever asked that question? What about sexuality? In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, we read an interesting statement. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Now, yes, here in the context, it's talking about procreation, but Christian, listen to this. God commanded the first man and woman to engage in sexual intimacy. That's interesting. What about sexuality? What about sex within the bounds of marriage? We find also in the Bible that an entire book is devoted to the expression and desire surrounding proper human sexuality. Song of Solomon. Ever read Song of Solomon? When's the last time someone here read Song of Solomon and didn't blush a little? <laughs> Turn with me, if you would, to Song of Solomon. I'm just kind of give you an overview of where we're going in this series. Uh, in this idea of sexuality, Song of Solomon, Solomon pens these words in chapter 1, verse 2 through 4. And here's the, his bride speaking of him. He says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Ooh, can I even say that in church? He says, let, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oiled poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. What about sexuality? What do we do with that? Where do we get our information surrounding sex? And the the entire book of Song of Solomon puts forth this idea that the greatest expression of sexuality is between one man and one woman in marital unity. That's what Song of Solomon puts forward. In this marital union, of all the things that marital sex is and can be, it is a glorious picture of the restoration of us as God's children. And here's what I mean by that. We're going to study this and and swim in this idea a bit and press in on this to understand this in regards to sexuality as a Christian in a Christian marriage. 
that human sexuality pictures the forgiveness of our sins and the, the ability to be naked and unashamed once again. Right? We find that in Genesis. Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, and then sin happened, and what happened? They clothed, and they were shamed in marriage of all the things it pictures. We find that marital, the marital bed is an experience of being literally naked and unashamed, and it's a picture of the immense spiritual reality of redemption. It's a beautiful picture. So we're going to look at that. We're going to address how culture tends to view sex as service to self and how God's design builds it as service to another. And next, we're going to talk about parenting. I think some of us are parents, right? Some of us have kids. Anyone still trying to figure out what to do with your kids? Mike, you got it all figured out, bro. (laughs) We're still, what do we do with our kids? What does it mean to parent? biologically, adoptive, uh, in a mentoring relationship? What does it mean to parent? What does it mean to train up the next generation? What does it mean? Uh, Psalm chapter 127, I've got it up here on the screen. But Psalm 127 says this in regards to parenting in verses 3 through 5. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. And I want to ask this question as we study parenting. Parent, what are you shooting from your bow? What are you shooting from your bow? Are you shooting weapons of war and preparing children to go out as kingdom proponents or implements of play? Are we preparing our children as instruments of war or implements of play? What is God's design for parenting? And I'll tell you this, as a millennial, let me just step out in and I'll say this here. You can't blame the millennials without looking at the generation that raised the millennials. We have to ask ourselves some serious hard questions and say, who are we sending out? Weapons of war? What I'm finding as a parent is this, that the onus is on me. That as I walk with our toddlers, with Kirsten and parenting even at a little age, and as I've walked with you with varying ages of children, that the onus is on us as parents. Not to save them, God does that, but to rear them and to soften them, to be redeemed and to be shot out as implements of war. What a thought that is. What a thought that is. What is God's design in parenting? What does it look like? Do we, do we hover? Are we distant? How does that work? We're going to explore that. I'm excited for that one. And then the third point that we're going to look at is this idea of mankind is consummated. Mankind is redeemed as Christians living in culture. How are we to act? How are we to live? And we'll just do this in three parts. The first one will be a, a study of the Christian and culture. How do, we, how do we engage culture? How do we interact with those that are opposed to the Christian worldview? There's a good question. How do we interact with our co-workers who are opposed to Jesus? How do we interact with our children's friends who are opposed to Jesus? How do we interact with our neighbors? How do we interact with a world that is increasingly hostile to Christian truth? How do we interact with them? How do we live? 
The second one will be this, the Christian in government. How do we participate in the affairs of this earth? What does it mean to be in the world but not of it? Some good questions. How do we both be an American and a Christian? Can we be? How does that work? And lastly, the Christian in the world. How are we to view the world and cultures and religions? So there it is. I am... I've been thinking this whole time as I was preparing this, this series. So there's the overview. Uh, and I had this interesting thought as I was preparing for it of all these little hot-button issues we're going to get into. Uh, five or six years ago, Kirsten and I went to El Salvador for a bit of time uh, on a missions trip. And uh, the director of our team was this dude named Mauricio. And it was the best experience ever, not only because we were on a mission trip, not only because we're in El Salvador, not only because you could ride on the outside of cars down the highway, which is fantastic. I almost died with a dirt bike hitting me. It's great. But Mauricio, I loved it. We got there. It was his last week employed at Word of Life. So his mantra was, what are they going to do? Fire me? That was Mauricio's mantra. He said, what are you going to do? Fire me? We're going to have a good time. And we did some crazy things. And so I decided, you know what? It might be kind of good. Let's just pick all the hot button issues on sex, gender, marriage, politics, and religion and have one last hurrah. And let's poke those. Let's prod those. And let's see what God's design is and that it's vital that we see the vision and plan of God in our life as his children. It's important that we no longer make things up as we go but rather find in his word the proper methods and structures by which to live. Very practically, that we would connect the dots between the big vision, the big theological God of the Bible, the transcendent one, and show how that point gets connected to Tuesday afternoon when your toddler is throwing Cheerios at you. How do we connect the dots? Your adult kids throw Cheerios at you, don't they, Ron? I would. I would. It's vital we don't make it up as as we go. If I can leave but one legacy here, I I honestly pray that it would be this, that to be Christian is to be fully human, that to be Christian is to be made a warrior, and I pray that through this series we can glean some practical steps rooted in deep theological truths. And I want to say this as well, that we're going to be talking about morals. That's odd as a 31-year-old to make a statement and say, we're going to talk about morals, but I want to caveat that with this. We're going to talk about morals, but not morals for morals' sake. We're not going to talk about just being good people just to be good people, but rather morals that are a result of a life redeemed by Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about. How the Christian life will look. How a Christian will live. How a Christian should function because of their redeemed status before God. And morals and a lifestyle that are, not only, that are only possible in and through Jesus. So we can't take away from these sermons an attitude of try harder, but rather an attitude of surrender and repentance as we grow in the gospel of grace. Amen? That sound good? So there's our next 10 weeks. Uh, next week, we're going to jump right in and we're going to address the idea of what it means to be created. So if you want to go ahead and read Genesis 1 and 2, uh, chew on that for a week. What are the implications in my life as a created being and me having a creator? Uh, that'll be next week kicking it off. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we come to you praising you for your word that it is immensely above us, beyond us. It is the mind of you put into written 
form, and yet it also is immensely practical and applicable for us. I pray that you would humbly guide us the next several weeks as we approach your word asking to understand what your design is, what your plan is, what your purpose is in in all the spheres of our life, whether it's our gender, whether it's our marriage, whether it's our sex life, whether it's our parenting, whether it's our involvement in the government, whatever it is, Father, would you inform us, help us to connect the dots between the theological and the practical. We love you, and it's in the mighty name of King Jesus we pray. Amen.